Open up your Bible to Exodus 21. Super strange passage today. Okay, 2 Timothy 3, Paul is telling his young disciple about the Bible, a little bit about scripture, and he says this, that all of it is breathed out by God. All of it. All of it. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. We're going to go ahead and test his statement right there. We're going to push on that as hard as we can with our passage today in Exodus 21 through 23. We are not reading all three chapters, okay? But we're going to cherry pick a couple passages here and there and center our gravity on one, right? But I will just put one out there just to kind of show you and maybe give you a flavor of what all three chapters are like, all right? Just in case you're curious. And this is going to be in 23, verse 19. Exodus 23, verse 19. And again, and let me underline, this is the word of the Lord. Okay? The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. Okay? Check. No problem. Here he goes. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. I know how disappointing that is for some of you because clearly that's the best way to cook goats. And now that's taken from us. Goat's really good eats, by the way, if you've never had it. It is good. But I remember as a young Christian, 21-year-old, reading through this for the first time, like a lot of Christians do, you you run through the Bible as fast as you can in a year. And I remember hitting this and thinking, wait, wait, now I'm full of questions. What does this mean? Why would you do that to a goat anyway? Does it matter today? What does it have to do with my life? See, that's why I don't like the Old Testament, right? That was the, the train of thought I would run through when I would hit passages like this. We are in a part of our walk through Exodus where we typically walk a little faster, okay? And I'm just going to say that some passages in our Bible are best handled at 30,000 foot. This is going to be one of them today. Not, Not so much at a granular level. Sometimes the widest angle is the most helpful angle. And today's passage, actually the whole three chapters, is an extension of what Randy led us through last week as he talked about the Ten Commandments. Here we get an application of some, and some say all, of the commandments. There are between 50 and 60 what we will call ordinances given. You can maybe think of it as like a bill of rights for this new nation, trying to figure out just how to live with each other. What do we do when you got a couple guys who get in a bar fight and they bump into a pregnant woman and something happens to the baby? What do you do, right? Or you dig a hole and you forget to cover it up or put a warning cone out there and someone steps and falls into it. What do you do? Or when you find a witch, what do you do? What do you do with these things? They, they have questions, and they are all answered in these three chapters. And honestly, these are the passages we don't know how to handle today. We don't know what to do with these. These are the passages that the world looks at, and they mocks a little bit. I did. I would think, so it is a book of rules. Here, you're telling me that it's a story about God's love. Sounds a whole lot like a bunch of rules and weird ones at that. Don't know that I'm super interested Because with old mosaic ordinances, like the whole three chapters, it could feel like you're learning the rules to cricket, a game you're never going to play, a game you don't care about, a game that's important to other people and not you. So what we will do is we will fall into two traps as people when we run into passages like this. Either we are going to be so confused that we simply detach from it, shrug our shoulders, flip over to the New Testament to see what Jesus is up to, right? That's one thing that we do. Because maybe it was helpful to them a little less so for us today. So it just becomes filler paper in our Bible to make it a little bit thicker. It's not really a passage that we're going to read. And I mean, it tests me in this. 
How many of those passages and those three chapters are underlined and highlighted in your Bible? None. I already know. I already know. None of them. No little notes out in the margin with a coffee ring stain from your deep devotionals that you spend in a year on this. None of that is true for anyone in this room. That's one trap we bump into. Another one is we can get offended with these passages because some of them are just straight up that at face value they're offensive if you don't understand what's going on. And we're going to look at a couple, right? And we read it through our 21st century filler and then we judge it, which is a classic Bible reading mistake. Classic, right? I've known people leave the church because of this. We call them duns. They've left the church because they have bumped into a difficult passage to interpret, and what they do is they carry this presupposition into it that they are more advanced than the people of the Bible because they are somehow down the timeline from them. C.S. Lewis and others in the past have called this chronological snobbery, right? Because after all, we're not cavemen. We walk a little bit more upright now. We're smarter, we're more advanced because we have Bitcoin and Chipotle and RuPaul's Drag Race. We've got things that they don't have. We're obviously a little bit better human beings. We're not barbarians, right? This is chronological snobbery. We're smarter and advanced. We are more informed. We have more righteous values. And what we do is we take all of that and carry it over to this crusty old Bible where everyone wears robes and they don't know what Wi-Fi is. And we stand above it and we judge it instead of position ourselves under it and let it interpret us. And let it interpret us. It's the idea that ancient people are inferior because they're ancient. In fact, we're so good at this kind of snobbery, I want to play a little game with you right now. We're going to call it useless, offensive, or scary, okay? I want you to remember those. We could put it up on the screen. Useless, offensive, and scary, all right? Now, I'm going to cherry pick three or four or five one-liners out of our passage today, and then we're all going to say today how we feel about it. Here's one in 2025, Exodus 2025. If you make an altar out of stone, you shall not build it with hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you will profane it. Pretty useless, let's be honest, right? Pretty useless. Doesn't really affect me on Taco Tuesday. It doesn't have anything to do with my life nor yours. 21 verse 2. When you buy a Hebrew slave, uh-oh, uh-oh, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. Well, that's offensive. That's offensive. The word slave is in it. 21 verse 6. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. I, again, pretty useless. Unless it's your ear, then it's offensive, right? But it's a useless thing. We don't have anything to do. There's no category for this. Verse 7, when a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as male slaves do. It's offensive, right? Ten verses later, whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. That's just a little scary, right? Some of you are like, wait, that's me. That's me right now. I've done that. Here's one, one verse later. Or no, a chapter and a verse later. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. None of you really probably even know a sorceress. You might see a bumper sticker on a car or something like that and wonder, kind of wonder in your mind if they're a witch or not, you know? But you don't know them. And what, what do you do if you do know them? What does any of this have to do with Little League or paying the bills? What does any of this have to do with how we lead our marriages? First of all, 
It's okay for you to slam into passages like this and come up empty. Can I just say that? Maybe let some air back in the room. Not all of this is going to be clear at first pass. How, how can you understand this at a cursory reading? Some of it requires commentary. On days like today, I hope to add a little bit of commentary to some of these. But here's the truth. You are smart enough with what you have to read through the plain Bible and get everything you need to enjoy Jesus and live a godly life. You don't need a professional to live a godly life for Jesus. You don't need to know the Greek and the Hebrew words. By the way, that, and I've had people ask me, that's why I don't bring a lot of Greek and Hebrew to the stage. Now, I'll read it during the week, and I'll try to squeeze out. I'm, this is why I don't do it. I'm a little fearful, fearful that if I keep dropping you know, what a word used to mean or what it means in its an original language, all people are going to do is walk out of here thinking that I won't ever understand that unless I know Greek or Hebrew. You can understand this. It was given to us as a common grace from God to be understood. It's plain. The gospel came to the uneducated first. You have everything you need. You don't need to go to seminary or go to Israel or anything like that to live a godly life. You don't need it. But admittedly, some of this is nothing less than head scratching. Because it's 2021 and we are a long way from these people both in time and in distance, and especially in culture. So it can literally be lost in translation. A lot of this is. And if that's you, that makes you normal. You're not dumb. You're not unspiritual. You're just normal, right? Even Peter struggled with some of this stuff in the Bible. If you ever just run over to Second, you know, Peter 3, I think it's in verse 3 or chapter 3, I don't know where exactly where it is, maybe in the middle of chapter 3, where he talks about, hey, Paul has written some really good things, but between you and me, he's kind of hard to understand, right? Paul's kind of hard to understand. I mean, come on, let's face it, you got to be on your second cup of coffee for some of his stuff, got to read it and then reread it, but it's kind of hard to get, right? And that's why we like Peter more than Paul. He gets us, right? Paul could be hard. He could be very difficult. So what do we do when we get to passages like our chapters today. Do we skip them, delete them, adhere to them? A lot of people do that. Do you really have to care how your goat was prepared? That's really the ultimate question when you think about it. Here's the main idea. God wants you to know who he is, and he will reveal himself to us in passages like this if we have eyes to see it. He wants you to know who he is, so when you hit a passage like this in your own Bible reading time or even times like this, always ask yourself, what does God look like? How does this show me the character of God? What does he look like and how does that lead me to live? Because as God becomes more complete, more accurately portrayed in our minds, it changes the depth of our worship, it changes the joy in our obedience, and it changes how we handle each other. It changes everything. When I was a new Christian trying to figure out who God was, I had to jackhammer up a lot of old foundation because the culture taught me who God was. I learned from a middle school locker room, a bunch of dumb sitcoms, rap music. That's what formed my idea of who God was. A lot of that I had to chisel out and remove and then replace with what the Bible says, with who God says he is. I had to change that out. And as that happens, I grew I grew in my joy. I grew in how sacrificial I could be. I grew in how I could forgive others. I grew in how I handled a critical spirit. I grew, and I enjoyed God more. That's why Lewis says that the most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think about God. It is important. Theology is what he's talking about. It is important. So let's just look at a couple of these. 
Maybe we could see who God is with a little bit more clarity. Exodus 23, 19, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Just to give a little bit of commentary on this so we can see God clearly, that was a common Canaanite practice. You'd see a lot of tribes and nations doing that all the time. It was how they worship false gods. Because think about it, it was the mixture between a symbol of life and death at the same time. Young goats boiled in mother's milk. They were taking symbols of life and symbols of death and adding them because that's how they worship their gods. God, God here is saying, eat goat. You can't eat it that way though. Go ahead and eat goat. Goat's good eats. But you cannot boil it in its mother. You can't do what the other tribes are doing. I will not be mixed and mingled with other gods. There will not be a pluralism in my people. Missionaries call this syncretism too, by the way, where we worship God, but we mix in a bunch of weirdness from other cultures, and it's confusing. And it ends up, you end up serving two gods at once. He's saying, I'm not going to have it. I'm not going to have that. So what we do is we learn that this is how God wants to be worshipped, differently than we used to worship our false idols, differently than those far from God worship their idols. But I know it still begs the question, but Luke, do we do that? I mean, we're all here. Lots of people. I mean, it's Sunday morning. We're all here. We've all got our Bibles. But we can still find pluralism dripping into our life. I mean, consider if you don't manage your money correctly, right? And I'm not just talking about failing to give to the ministry. I'm not just talking about failing to give to the local church. I'm talking about things even outside of that, how you manage it. If you manage your money as if it belongs to you and not to God, that's in fact stealing it. That's acting as an owner, not a manager, not a steward. But it's also a worship of an idol. Is that not the same exact thing, in our case here, of boiling a young goat in its mother's milk? It's syncretism, it's pluralistic, God will have none of it. That's why we see Jesus and Matthew saying, no one can serve two masters. Can't serve God in money. He's basically just remixing some of the stuff that we have in Exodus. So actually, there is a lot to be learned in something like this. How about 20 verse 25? If you make an altar out of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. Interesting. All that means is, is back then, the cultures, when they built an altar to their false gods, they'd take a lot of tools to the stone. They would make it a beautiful stone. Those altars were beautiful. I mean, the Egyptians made pyramids. You don't think they can make an altar? They can make an altar. And they were gorgeous, made by the best artisans. And people would actually worship the artisans and worship the altar itself. That's what's happening. And so what God is saying, that's not going to happen. I'm not going to be worshipped second. I'm not going to be worshipped second. In fact, worshipping me won't even require an artisan. He is the ultimate artisan. Just pick up a stone that he has already made and build it out of that. You could build it anywhere. How does that alter our life, though? Well, what about worship services? This. Can this be so ornate and so purposed and so engineered that we worship the act of worship? That we worship our own voices. We love the way that we sing. We're not even really thinking about the God that we're praising. We're not even thinking about the God that we're worshiping. We're just locked up into the moment. I've been in conferences and churches where there's so much singing and there's so much delight in the moment, but you almost have to pull yourself out and say, what, what, am, what am I doing right now? I'm just enjoying the moment and I'm enjoying singing, but I'm not really worshiping. 
You know, one of the things that inspires me the most about Chase and Charlie, who lead our worship setting, is that they are constantly, capital C, constantly asking themselves and asking me the question, how much is too much? How much is too much production? I mean, look, we got some really good blue lights up here. Those are super cool blue lights. No lie, I like them. I'm not even being facetious, I like the blue lights, right? We've got a screen, we've got a projector, we've got a dude back here on his gigantic Mac. We've got people showing up two hours before you even get in your car to come here and they've been slaving to make this a good environment. When does it stop being a hospitable environment that makes worship easy and become something just over the top? When? It's not really a problem to be answered as much as a tension to be lived in, but it is one that we have to live in, right? But the second this becomes a talent show where we applaud each other and love the sound of our own voice, we have to go right back to a passage like Exodus 20, 25 and understand it's a warning to us every bit as much as it's a warning to them. Okay? Here's another one. 21 verse 25. This is an interesting one, but I think it's helpful for all of us. 21 verse 22. It says, when men strive together, that means they're punching each other, by the way. I don't know why they don't just say that. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him and he shall pay as the judge determined. But if there is harm, you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Interesting. By the way, just as a side note, this is an ancient confirmation that life begins in the womb. There's a death penalty if something happens to kill that baby in the womb, right? This is not God being brutal in justice. It's showing us a picture of God. He's serious about life. He's serious about the value of human life all the way to the womb. He's saying life has value, it's important to him. Even more so those who cannot defend themselves. Even more so the defenselessness of the victim. And you're gonna see that as a common theme throughout these three chapters. Not for nothing, in another sermon entirely, it also underlined that another life would be given, life for life, for those who did commit a transgression, right? God is brutal upon a substitute for us, even though we are getting what we don't deserve and not getting what we do deserve. There is a picture of the gospel, again, if you have eyes to see it, even in that. So we, you and I, we are to value life because he is showing us who he is, but he's also handcrafting a people to be in his shape. We're to value life, particularly the vulnerable. I mean, not, not only is abortion a godless thing, but to the utmost degree, there are people that are defenseless. And we are supposed to have a, a rage that matches that of God. And so, as we move through this, we've got to remind ourselves that Israel is coming out of over 400 years in another culture, complete with its own ordinances and laws. They already had a set of laws and a set of ordinances. Slavery was different in Egypt. Women handled differently. Animals handled differently. Responsibility and restitution was handled differently. Egypt ran a different show. They worshiped different. Social justice looked different. Pregnancies looked different. Resting looked different. Farming looked different. Everything was. And now God is showing the world and showing his people that they would be different. He's drawing them out, he's drawing them in. A God that would be beautiful, singularly worshiped, values life, 
cares for the defenseless, will create a people unto himself that will do the same thing. Do the same thing. God gives you zero laws in your Old Testament without showing you who he is. Again, if we have eyes to see it. If we have eyes. I mean, consider that almost half of the ordinances in those three chapters regard parts of the population that are vulnerable to some degree. I know, I know social justice has become a term of provocation. I get it. Justice for the socially vulnerable, though, that was God's idea. It's God's idea. And one, one set of instructions I do want to zoom in on a little bit and take a special look at is the one of slavery. This will be the one that the watching world is most aghast by. It's the one that to many people is useless, offensive, and scary all at the same time. So we're going to look at 21 verse 2. I'm just going to read for a few verses. And it says this, When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost and his master shall bore his ear through with an owl and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave... She shall not go out as the, masters, as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall not, or she, he shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Okay. Slavery here is not what we think of when we think of the American experience. That's why some of your Bibles, by the way, have replaced that word slave for servant, right? I'm not too upset about that. I think it's sidestepping the issue a little bit. I think we were just brave and just looked at it. For what it is, I think we'll get a little further down the road. I know our, our culture today is drawing some battle lines over what we teach is historically accurate when it comes to our country, especially regarding race right now. But when you read slave in the Bible, that is not the same thing our country participated in. You've got to know that. You've got to know that. The Bible is clear on the slavery that occurred in our country and what the ramifications were. In fact, you'll see in 16, verse 16, which is five down from what we just read, it says, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in his possession of him shall be put to death. That was the penalty for what we know as the slave trade. If you get caught selling a slave, you get caught buying a slave, you die. That was the Mosaic ordinance, you die. Your Bible is actually the oldest anti-slavery document in the world. It's the oldest one. This is the first time anyone cared. It's important to know that back then there were no businesses and no corporations. There were no LLCs to give employment to people. The only businesses were family ones and those were most typically agrarian. So you didn't carry your, your resume to HR. You didn't upload it to a website and wait for a phone to ring. None of that happened. When people got in bad debt, or when people needed money badly, they could have contractually enter service with another family. 
contractually enter service. And that's what we're reading to some degree, a bill of rights for those who entered contractual bond service. So think Downton Abbey, right? That's literally what we have happening here. People sold their services to another family, not their souls. You see, this type of social institution, it became evil whenever mankind disregarded human rights. But God is here protecting slaves in Israel. You could not own a person. You could not own a life. You could just contract with their abilities and their services. I mean, friends, think about it. In professional sports, you hear some very similar terminology. I'm a sports honk. I listen to it all day, every day. These are some of the phrases I hear all the time. We are releasing them from their contract. They're becoming a free agent. They are testing the market to see who will pick up their contract. They are in breach of their contract. These are the things that we see. These teams aren't purchasing the athletes, just their abilities. Just their abilities. They do not own them. Again, they had been enslaved differently in Egypt for four centuries. All they knew was whips. Their souls were sold off. So now they needed to know how things would look different as a reflection of their God. And that might be okay for some of you, but when we get to verse seven where it says, when a man sells a daughter, that seems like, that seems like we just outkicked our coverage a little bit, right? Like it's okay to, to maybe contract your own services and your own abilities, but to sell your daughter and to do it? What kind of a guy, what kind of a dad sells his daughter into slavery? Well, as it turns out, a thoughtful one. A thought, this was a thoughtful move for a good dad. Again, let's be very careful of chronological snobbery right here. In fact, let's just fire up the old uh, flux capacitor and maybe bring somebody from this era to today. Park them in front of whatever streaming service you choose and let them watch reality TV for a week. We'll see who's the cave person then, right? Well, <laughs> they'll have comments, I'm sure. Maybe we don't understand the value of women. Maybe, maybe we're the ones that are selling our girls as objects. So let's be careful. Dads back then were hopeful to improve the future possibilities of their daughters. Daughters didn't typically fare in the cold, hard, brutal world like sons did, right? They were looking to empower their daughters in a difficult situation. A wealthy family, a wealthy home could pull that off, could maybe improve their daughter's station in life, giving her the best life possible. It's, it's obviously not optimal, but God is providing a way for families. He's looking to protect these women. I mean, you could see by the three provisions that he gave. If it doesn't work out, the family could ransom her back. But they were not allowed to sell them to a foreign, a foreign family. That's one. Two, if she was sold to a man's son, she was no longer a slave. She was treated as a daughter, as a free person. That was the second one. Third, if the engagement simply ended, the man had to provide all that she needed moving forward. We see provisions here because God is thoughtful. That's what we have to pick up in this. What is God revealing about himself? When it comes to the financially vulnerable, God looked to protect people from abuse. That's what we see. He's thoughtful and he's loving and he's considerate and he's creating a people who will be the exact same way. God is giving the financially overwhelmed and the financially impoverished people a way to exist without being abused and manhandled and broken and ruined because no one, no one in God's, in God's great grace and mercy no one would put his people under whips again to make bricks out in the sun. They would be no one's slave ever again. I mean, just think about that. Why would God break them out of slavery to make them slaves? It doesn't even make sense. It's not the same slavery we grew up with. 
So when you read stories of sex trafficking and modern day slavery, which is over 4 million people, they're enslaved today globally. And you read about manipulation and the discomfort and the tragedy and the injustice that comes in sweatshops, understand that as sad as that makes you before you scroll to the next story, it enrages an emotionally charged God. It enrages him. When you see poverty and the worst parts of poverty and people unable to crawl out of generations of destitution, know that that is more than just sad to God. These are defenseless people. God leaves a way out for those financially underwater. They are not to be abused. They are not to be mishandled because God is Lord over the unfortunate and the downtrodden because this is how he found his people. That's how they're going to handle each other, right? I'll tell you, legacy's best moments as a church, as I was dreaming and thinking about this, have been when we stepped into the mess of the vulnerable around us, whether it's helping out first responders in the Gatlinburg fires, or supplying refugee kids with backpacks of supplies here, or paying for a little girl's dental work, or putting coins and machines across the street to pay for laundry because people can't even do that, or to put furniture in someone's house that they're getting back on their feet, or to pay utility bills. Those are our finest moments as a church. Listen, I love planting churches, I do. I'm all about it. And I'm all about building leaders who will build leaders. These are our best moments though. I'm excited over the next month and a half or so to bring in Ken, Knoxville International Network, as they bring their vision of how we as a church can partner with them and reaching those people, the defenseless, the vulnerable, the ones that need help when it comes to refugees, specifically refugees. I'm excited about that. Listen, I'm going to tell you right now as a pastor, we're all in on that. We are all in on that. But listen, as important as this is, the, the, the idea that a thoughtful God is shaping a thoughtful people, we have more than these laws to show us a way. We have, more, we have the fulfillment of these laws. I'm gonna take you back to a passage, probably the oddest one we've read today in verse five of chapter 21, and this is where we're gonna find the gospel clearly. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, and I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through. Listen, he's poking a giant hole in this guy's ear. Just so y'all know what that means. And he shall be his slave forever. That sounds odd, and it is. It's weird. We don't do it today. But it's beautiful. This is beautiful. A servant is saying to his master, I love you, and I love my family, and I love what I have here, and I'm willing to go the distance. Like, we'll ride till we die, you and me. That's what's happening. Forget the great application in a totally different sermon of this is how I think every man should be with his family. I think we have a picture of Jesus. Because in the Babylonian code of laws, most historians will tell you that if you found a rebellious slave, the master would actually chop their ear off, okay? Just to give some commentary behind this. So apparently, allegedly, the ear marked the status of a slave in the ancient Mideast. I wasn't there to make that decision. I don't know why they came up with that and not a pinky or something like that, but it's an ear, it's an ear. So to memorialize the permanence of this really cool moment, a good servant, not a rebellious one, a good servant is taken and pierced through by or into the threshold of a door, the door of a house. And from then on, there would be permanence between the master and the slave. And everything would be beautiful and everyone would get along and have alignment. Later on, 
Another servant who loved his master, even his son, would declare his love for his master and his family by being pierced, not at the door of a house, but at the door of a kingdom. And that too, friends, would be permanent. Because of the service of Jesus, we are slaves no longer to sin, but to a better master, one who is good. Because of the piercing of Jesus, we have a family. Isaiah tells us that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. The gospel of God for mankind is a story of a good and thoughtful God and a people that he has thoughtfully handcrafted to go out as he came to us and thoughtfully handle the people around us as well. So there's plenty of room for me personally, and maybe you to repent as we park ourselves in front of these odd passages that we, chip, we typically cruise right through. There's a lot of room for us, right? Where have you not taken the shape of God, for instance? Where do you see the character of God clearly displayed, whether it's through an odd rule that we don't follow anymore or through a picture of the gospel? Where do you see God's character clearly and refuse to be handcrafted in the same way? Where do, we, where do you push away? I mean, we have a slave with a pierced ear symbolizing a forever commitment, a forever worship, a forever obedience. But where do we refuse this? Where is our slavery to the Father who is kind to us really more of a partial arrangement and not a total one? Because I mean, let me tell you, the gospel is powerfully inconvenient. It actually removes our ability to be joyful when we're serving other masters. It removes that. And it's not going to let us have dry eyes where God has cried tears. It's not going to let us ignore what holds his attention. This gospel is not going to find itself growing in people who are bored with what's exciting to God, people that are not enraged where he is. These are the hard questions we have to ask ourselves. Some of us in this room have to Honestly, I mean, man, if you do anything today, just have a gut-level frank talk with yourself today. If you are bored with what God is excited about and the things that charge him blow right over your head, what are you doing? What are you serving? Who are you serving? Who are you a slave to? And listen, if you are wondering, as I said, we've done things in the past as a church, We'll continue to grow to do things in the future as a church as it regards social justice. I don't really care what politics decides to do with that term. I know they're hurting people out there. I know we can help. We're going to step into it, right? As you step into social justice moments, helping those who just simply cannot help themselves in whatever shape that might look like, don't do it because CNN or Twitter told you to do it and made you feel shameful for not doing it. Is that not why a lot of Christians do it? They step into it so they can check that box and not feel guilty if someone asks them? Can we not do it because we are stepping in the shape of the gospel story itself? Of course we can. And listen, if you're listening and you are maybe searching for God, maybe far from God, you're watching online and God is something that you're curious about, let me just ask you, in a world of many gods, which of your gods has given you so much thoughtful love? Which God has handled you so carefully, so thoughtfully? Which has shown themselves so graceful? Because we have a savior here who kept all the laws and was pierced for us. He was the servant that didn't just give some more years of service to the master, he gave his life. 
And this was to break us away from slavery to sin and bring us into the fold of slavery to the beautiful master. That's the story we have.